Today is a good day. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Caden Jaramillo. I am a husband, I'm a son, I'm a brother, and I'm a friend. Um, but probably most relevant to many of you is I'm also a servant here at Coast Bible Church. So if you are a parent of a student in the Awanas program in our junior high ministry or high school ministry, I have taught your child at some point or another. And uh, I was strengthened in my faith in high school, and I was uh, showed the love of a pastor who came into my school who would bring pizzas and tell me that Jesus loved me. And that's what turned me to Christ. That's what strengthened me in my faith. And so that's the passion that I let drive me whenever I teach your kids and walk alongside them. And so with that being said, when I was asked to teach today, all the thoughts were going through my brain on what passages I wanted to share. And I decided I was going to share a passage that I recently gave to the high school ministry. And I'm going to do this for two reasons. Firstly, parents, I want you to be encouraged about the kind of teaching that your child is receiving. And secondly, I believe this is a message that is just as relevant for you as it was for them. And so the high school group for really since the beginning of the school year has been in a series on surrender. And we've talked about how surrender isn't just giving over part of yourself, but it's inviting God into every single aspect of your life. Not just the visible or the big sins or those big issues, but every single part of yourself, even the small parts that you might wouldn't expect. And so today, we're going to talk about money. More specifically, what it means to be a good steward of our money. So I want to start with one question for everybody. And I want you to daydream with me just for a little bit. What is your ideal life? What is your ideal life? What job are you working? Are you even working a job? What house do you live in? What vehicles do you drive? Who do you live with? What are your finances like? What's your health like? What are your friends like? What do you do with your free time? I hope you have a picture in your head. So I'm going to ask the next question. Was God in your mental picture of your ideal life? Now, for some of you sitting here, that might be a resounding yes. You can't think of any better place to be on a Sunday worshiping Jesus. You can't think of any better thing to do throughout the week than gathering with your brothers and sisters in Christ and serving. But if you're like me, the answer was no. And I need to constantly remind myself what the Bible says, that I was bought with a price, that my life is not my own, that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and that it is God who is in control. Now, this relates to money in a few different ways, because although God is in control, money can tempt us with three illusions to get us to think that we're in control. The first is comfort, right? That provision. The second is self-sufficiency. The idea that since we're provided for, we don't need to rely on anybody or anything else. And the third is power and authority, right? That when we have that provision, that self-sufficiency, we begin to realize that we can do things with our money and even influence others in the world around us. And we're all sitting here in church on a Sunday, and we might be thinking that money isn't the biggest of issue, um, at least in terms of sins or you know, issues in our lives. But I want to 
I want us to be reminded of this. We can't, we can't forsake focusing on this aspect of scripture because it was for 30 pieces of silver that Judas betrayed Christ to be crucified. Judas was a disciple. Judas was a follower of Christ. Judas knew Christ. He saw him. He touched him. He heard him. He saw him perform miracles. He saw Peter confess him to be the Christ. And yet he chose to betray him for half a year's wages. That's enough to buy a car. You know, cars break down. You need a new car. It's so temporary. So I believe that the Lord has a message for each of us this morning. And when we talk about surrender, we need to realize that surrender has more to do with our hearts than with what we are giving up. Wanting to follow God's way instead of our own. And so when it comes to God's way with money, we need to start in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. That's page 1 of your Bibles. The text says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, theologians and scholars will call this very special text the cultural mandate or the creation mandate, depending on who you're talking to. And it's special for a few reasons. We learn about who we are and that we're made in the image of God. And we also learn about what it means to be made in the image of God, what our function is on this earth. So firstly, to be made in the image of God is to have intrinsic worth, value, dignity, and purpose. Now, the substance of being made in the image of God is still up for debate. People say it's, you know, what you look like, your ability to rationalize or have morality— That's all up for debate. But functionally, this passage is very clear. That being, that as image bearers, we're called to first rule over creation, imitating God. Just as God rules over the universe, we are placed on this earth in his image to have dominion over the earth, to tend to this earth, to cultivate it. And secondly, we're called to be sub-creators, imitating God. Just as God created the universe from nothing, we are called to take this world, this earth, and create something from something, to develop, to be creative. And we are called to do both of these in community, each working together and doing our part. And so this cultural mandate lays the groundwork for stewardship. And it's actually, the Greek word here is oikonomos, for stewardship. And it's where we get our modern day word for economics. And the definition for that is to manage our resources, time, and talents in a world of scarcity. And I'll just add my thoughts on that in a way that glorifies God. In the ancient times, the way stewardship was used, a steward was the head of the household. They were appointed by the father who was in charge of everything to manage the day-to-day activities. And that's who we are. That's who we are appointed on this earth to be. And so before we can move on to our application of money, we need to understand four foundational principles of stewardship. 
First of all is ownership. God owns everything, and we are managers on his behalf. And because we're just managers, God ultimately has right to control over his own property. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 10, 26. He says, for the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. Secondly, we have responsibility. While it is a grace to serve God, to care for his creation, to develop it, and even to enjoy it, it is a responsibility that we have to be faithful with what God gives us here on this earth. And thirdly, there's accountability. We are going to be held to account for how faithful we are. Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12 say, For we will all appear before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So we're going we're gonna to give an account to God as to how responsible we were as stewards with our time on this earth. And I want you guys to hear me very clearly on this. Coast Bible Church, I want us to live in a way to have eyes looking out, looking as to ways that we can live in a way that matters to God. To be bold, to be passionate, to be dedicated to our calling in Christ. Driven each and every morning to wake up and give all that we have to Jesus. Not wasting opportunities by succumbing to fear or to laziness, but to be moved from within to seize all that God places in front of us. To glorify him. To make other people's lives better. Even in the most mundane of tasks. And it's okay to fail as long as we try, because then we can learn from our mistakes. But if we never try, then we don't learn either from our failure or our successes. And we need to live in this way now. Because we're going to build the habits and the disciplines that's going to strengthen our character and our convictions, which is really what God cares about. Coast Bible Church, I want us to become the good and faithful servants now who God will remember us for later when he holds us to account all that we've done. Because number four, there is a reward. While we aren't promised to get fully rewarded here in heaven, or on earth, we will in heaven. And in heaven, we'll be in glory, we'll be in paradise, we'll be in perfection, we'll be worshiping God in all of his beauty, in all of his majesty, and satisfied in all that he is, and all that he gives us, united together, singing, holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. And friends, stewardship has an application in every part of our lives. From the way that we deal with our families, to our jobs, to our friends, whatever God places before you. But what does this mean for our money? What does it mean to be a good steward of our money? Two things. Firstly, we need to worship God with it and not worship it as God. Our attitude should not be, I exist, therefore I deserve. It should be, I exist, therefore I serve. Worshiping God means not serving the flesh. It means rejecting the temptation to trust that more money will grant comfort, self-sufficiency, and power that will satisfy. Those things are temporary, and they come at a cost. So we need to look to God for those things. And Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 6. 
he tells us, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and we neither th- where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And a couple verses later, he says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So we need to worship God with our money. Secondly, we need to give. We need to give to God and we need to give to his people. Why? Because it's his. It doesn't belong to us. We cannot hold tightly onto what is temporarily given to us to manage. And friends, I'm not putting this message together by string. It's not something I'm making up. Before the law of Moses and the sacrificial system was even established, there were multiple occasions where people gave what they had to God, honoring this principle of stewardship. Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel, knew that they had to be stewards. They gave what they had to God. Noah, when he disembarked from the ark, sacrificed and he gave what he had to God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob sacrificed, gave what they had to God. Abraham even gave what he had in the Lord's name to somebody else, to Melchizedek. So we are supposed to give to God and to his people. And how are we supposed to do this? Simply put, generously and joyfully. Paul, when he addresses this matter in 2 Corinthians says, each one of us must do just as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace overflow to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. My grandpa tells me a story that I think relates to this about my dad when he was a little boy. Um, My dad was one of four children. He had three other brothers and they grew up in Alamosa, Colorado, which is just this little town. I visited a few years back and There's not a whole lot going on there, especially after COVID. Um, But my grandparents were trying to teach my dad and his brothers this discipline of stewardship to give what you have to God, particularly with money. So whenever they would pass the offering plate, they'd give my dad and his brothers a nickel just to to put it in there. And they were were little at this time. And one day, it must have registered in my dad's brain that maybe he could have got a gumball with that nickel. Maybe he could have saved up and got something nice. Who knows what? But something clicked in his head that he didn't want to let go of that nickel. And so when the offering plate came by, he was didn't want to let it go. And after some persuasion from my grandpa, he eventually dropped it in and went about the day. Now, later that day, my grandpa was inside, and my dad was through the screen door playing out back. And he's all laughing, and he's playing, and then it gets really quiet. And parents or Older siblings, you know when kids get really quiet, all of a sudden something's up. So my grandpa goes to investigate, and all of a sudden he hears, I'm rich, I'm rich, I'm rich. And my dad comes running to him, and he pulls out two quarters from his pocket, which that was a lot of money back in the day, right? There's no way that he could just find two quarters on the ground. His uh, siblings didn't give them to him. My grandpa or grandma didn't give it to him. So my grandpa sat my dad down, and he said, see, God didn't need your money. And I take that story here to emphasize this principle. God doesn't need our money. He needs our hearts. And that's why he cares about us giving 
joyfully and generously, not under compulsion, and to worship him with that. So now that we've seen the four principles of stewardship, now that we've seen we're supposed to worship God with our money and to give it to God and his people, we're going to show you some examples of stewardship. Firstly, we're going to show you a bad example of stewardship through a video that we have prepared. about winning the lottery, thinking about what we would do if we had a few million dollars. The chances of hitting the jackpot are slim, but we found 10 people who beat the odds, and here is how they spent their winnings. George and Beryl Keys from England beat the 14 million to 1 odds in 2012 and won 3.5 million pounds, nearly 4.6 million dollars in the lottery. After winning the jackpot, the couple decided to divvy their new fortune up between family members. In an interview, the Keats told the Mirror, we gave £250,000 to each of our four sons, £10,000 to each of our nine grandchildren, and gave some money to our sisters. And after that, they still had some money left, some of which the couple actually used to buy more lottery tickets. David Lee Edwards was a convicted felon when he won $27 million in the Kentucky Powerball back in 2001, and he quickly went on an insane shopping spree, buying multiple cars, a house, a medieval armor and weapons collection, a private jet, racing horses that kept losing, and a Hummer golf cart for his daughter, among some other things. Within just a year, Edwards had spent roughly $12 million and contracted hepatitis from repeated drug abuse. By 2006, all of his lottery winnings were gone, his wife had left him because he was broke, and he was forced to sell all of his belongings. Edwards ended up living in a storage unit where he died alone, surrounded by his own feces, and owing thousands of dollars just 12 years after winning $27 million in the Powerball. In 1998, 35-year-old James Allen Hayes won the $19 million California Super Lotto, becoming the second largest lottery winner in Ventura County. For the next two decades, he had a guaranteed annual income of $684,000, so he was practically set for life, especially if he made some smart investments. Hayes stated that he wasn't going to blow the money, but unfortunately, things didn't exactly turn out like that. After opting to take the lump sum of $6 million and getting divorced, Hayes lost half his fortune to his wife and then got hooked on heroin and spent all of his winnings in no time. However, instead of looking for a job, Hayes started selling his possessions and then became a notorious bank robber, often referred to as the seasoned bandit. Although he robbed around 11 banks over the years, Hayes was only able to get just under $40,000 in total. Then, in 2017, the FBI finally caught him in an abandoned garage he had been living in, and in June earlier this year, the former lottery winner was sentenced to 33 months in federal prison in order to pay over $38,000 in restitution, according to United States Attorney's Office. Charlie Lagarde had just turned 18 when she won the lottery with the first and only ticket she had ever bought. The young winner was offered the choice of either receiving a $1 million lump sum or $1,000 a week for the rest of her life. Lagarde chose to get the $1,000 per week and revealed that she wanted to use the money to travel and study photography, telling the Evening Standard, one of my dreams would be to work for National Geographic. When Scotsman... Alright. In, uh, in the interest of time, to the dismay of my youth students, I actually cut off um, one that came after this. There is a young man who won the lottery, and his dream was to have a comedy sketch show called Wrestlelicious Mania, where there would be, be wrestling and sketch comedy and 
bunch of weird stuff, and of course, he lost all of his money. These were people who were given the opportunity to live their ideal life. And I like that we got a range of old people, young people, um, people who, you know, manage their money kind of well, like that girl who took the $1,000 a week, and then people who just blew it. Um, But where was God in that? And that's the question that I'm going to constantly keep asking is, where is God in the way that we manage and deal with our money? And so who knows their lives, but in large part, those are some examples of bad stewardship. But I want to show you from Scripture a good example of stewardship. And so now we're going to turn to Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, which say, And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began watching how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large amounts. And a poor widow came and put in two leptic coins, which amount to a quadrants. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she owned, all that she had to live on. I love it in scripture when somebody shows up on the page who crosses her, their life crosses path with the biblical redemptive narrative and then they quickly exit. But in their moment, they were faithful. We never even get this woman's name, but she was faithful in the time that we see her in scripture. So just to set the scene, this is the last week of Jesus's life. And for this few day span, Jesus was in the temple. He was teaching and he was debating the Pharisees kind of around the same subject of what it means to show full and complete love to God. That was the focus of this whole week and the debates and conversations that he had. And at some point, Jesus decided to sit down, probably to rest, and just start at the people watch. And Jesus took notice of this woman. And he actually called his disciples over to commend her. And we can assume the reason this woman was commended by Jesus was because she stewarded her money well, which reflected her heart for God. And I'm going to show you that through our four principles. Firstly, she acknowledges ownership. As a poor widow, she had every incentive to keep the money that she gave. It wasn't even that much to begin with. But she knew it was not her own and that it ultimately belonged to the Lord. And so in doing so, she honored the responsibility she had to manage God things well. How? Well, she didn't forsake the responsibility until she had more money to give. Again, hear me on this. She gave out of her poverty instead of waiting for a surplus. That goes for us too. Just because not all of us maybe have a salary with a 401k with all of our debt paid off and all of our kids off at college doesn't mean that we cannot honor God with the responsibility that he's given each and every one of us with the things that he's given us. And if you don't have much money in your bank account, there is a whole lot of other ways to give. There's your time, there's your talents, and then there's your treasures. Whatever you have, we need to give it to God when we have it in the way and the amount that our heart joyfully determines. Because third, we will be held accountable, just like this woman was. 
You know, people are different. Parents, you see this in your teenagers. People are different when a camera is on them. Have you ever noticed that someone pulls out a, a phone to, like, take a selfie, and then all the kids, like, start throwing up peace signs and doing crazy, silly faces? People act differently when attention is pointed on them. And we see from this text here, is it still up? Maybe. That Jesus was watching how the people were putting money into the treasury. And these rich people, we can assume, were probably calling a lot of attention to themselves. But Jesus noticed the poor widow. Nobody probably noticed her except Jesus. She probably just slid in and then left. She might not have known that Jesus was watching her by, but she knew that God was watching her, and she wanted to honor that responsibility and honor the ownership. Jesus saw her. And fourthly, she received her reward. She is in glory, and she has joyfully received all of the rewards due to her, which we know from this text are greater than the rich men who gave from their surplus. She is a good example of someone who stewarded what she had well. And so, friends, as we close, I want to conclude with a few thoughts for us. Firstly, about this woman. This woman was a widow, and widows, as we know, were at the rock bottom of society and dependent on others to take care of them. Though, by her act in this passage, she acknowledged that she is more than just a poor widow in a welfare case. By stewarding her money well, she acknowledged that she is a woman made in the image of God and that that is enough. And so I ask friends, and listen closely, do we believe that we are worth enough, valuable enough, and treasured enough by God to not define ourselves off of what we have or how much we have, or even our circumstances? Because being made in the image of God comes with the assurance that we do not need to conform to any other image of ourselves that we can even fabricate. There is no ideal life that we can daydream about that is greater than the one that God has for us to live. We need to choose his way. Because we are different kinds of people. We are not after the things of the flesh, but we are after the things of the spirit. And this is not a lifestyle change. It is a supernatural change within our hearts and our spirit to value the things of God more than the things of man. To honor the creator and not the creature. And again, money might be a small concern for you now. But whether you have much or whether you have little, God calls to all of us saying, I want to see that you value me more than what you're hanging on to. I want you to trust me with your money. And God, when he provides for us and he promises he will, doesn't always give us what we want, but he gives us exactly what we need. And he always does so in a kingly manner. We don't need to beg for it because our God is a king. He's the ruler of the universe. And so when he delivers, he will deliver it as a king. Next thought concerning our nation. As time goes on, our values as a nation continue to decline. And I, uh, Tom actually showed the statistic I'm going to show you now um, a couple weeks ago when he talked about coveting. Um, he got that from when I taught this message to the youth group. But this is, uh, these are statistics um, from the Wall Street Journal and the National Opinion Research Center. 
that tracked over 25 years how old people, young people, Republicans, and Democrats, people from all demographics, where they put their values. The value of religion has decreased from 70% to 39%. The value of patriotism has gone from 70% to 38%. The value of having children has decreased from 59% to 30 value of community service has gone from 47 to 27. The only priority that has grown over the two and a half decades is money, which 43% of Americans now see as very important, which is an increase from 31% in 1998. Again, this is across the whole spectrum. Young people, old people, Republicans, Democrats from all places and all walks of life in our nation. So what about us? Do you value money more than your faith, community, and your family? Because that's the way this generation is heading. Those are our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends, maybe even extended family members. These are the people that we see at the grocery store and that we buy our food from. This is where our community is heading. But what about you? In God's creation mandate, he tells us to serve him faithfully, to serve our families faithfully, and to serve others faithfully. So secondly, what has God given you to steward? What has God entrusted you to care for? And what does it look like to be a good steward of these things? I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up now. When I think of these questions... um, I can't help but think of my wife. And I remember the joy that I had when I first asked her to go on a date with me because I felt she was way out of my league. And I went to bed so happy, but I woke up the next morning just with a knot in my stomach. And that feeling like you drop down a roller coaster, like your stomach has just gone down. And at no point... Other than that, in my life, have I ever felt the fear of God more? Because it hit me that she is God's daughter. That it is an honor and a privilege to walk beside you. And that it is a responsibility to cherish you. She's someone who I have in my life to steward. Who or what do you have to steward in your life? How can you honor God? What has God entrusted you? And so friends, as we close, according to all that God has created us to be, made in the image of God, and all that he has died for us to receive, let us follow his words faithfully and serve him well and steward all that he gives us. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And Jesus, who are we that you would die for us? That you would redeem us? That you would restore us? That you would call us kings and priests in your kingdom, Lord? Who would you, you would entrust us and give us responsibilities to manage what's yours. 
that you would walk beside us to see us grow. So God, we worship you and we praise you. Lord, we want to choose you by surrendering every part of our lives to you. From the visible sins to the secret sins, Lord, to the most mundane of things, Lord, we want you in every single part of our lives. So God, concerning our message today, Lord, as we go home, let us not leave this message at the door. Let us continue to chew on it, to meditate on these words. God, and we just invite you to move in our hearts that we would steward our money well and we would steward all that you have to give us well. And we pray these things in your mighty, holy, and precious name. Amen.